there, it's Gary Parish. It's Sunday, December 2nd, 2018. Welcome back to the Iowa College Basketball Podcast. Got Matt Norlander here with me. And like we told you on Friday, there were no games scheduled in college basketball this weekend between two top 15 opponents. And there ended up not being any big upsets this weekend. But number one Gonzaga was pushed at Creighton. Number two, Kansas, was pushed at home by Stanford, even though Kansas was a a 20-point favorite in that game. Norlander, I know you were in front of a television uh, most of this weekend. Of all the results, the games, what stood out to you? Well, listen, there's a ton ton that went down, but uh, Saturday itself was kind of crazy. Um, You had a lot of ranked teams perish that – were, were flirting with losing that were really threatened uh, with a loss, either uh, a deficit early in the first half or, or lingering into the second half. And that's that goes from Buffalo playing in Ireland, by the way. Um, that, that was on CBS Sports Network playing against San Francisco. That was a, a good game, and Nate Oates' team will remain ranked because they got the win. Kentucky got a 17-point win over UNC Greensboro, and they were losing – early in that game and then they kind of pulled away so if you see the final score you might not have thought anything was too much of a miss with Kentucky but it's it's actually got its issues on both ends of the three-point line uh, we'll get to that in the podcast down the road Gonzaga Creighton was probably the most entertaining game on Saturday Creighton led throughout the first half into the second half Gonzaga really flipped a switch uh, and was able to get that six to eight point cushion uh, Rui Hachimura Brandon Clark were fantastic Zach Norvell had his moments and Gonzaga doesn't even have all of its pieces doesn't have Gino Crandall doesn't have Killian Tilly and it's why I tweeted on Saturday when that team is healthy I do believe it's got a good shot at being better than even the team that was a one seed uh, two years ago that only had two losses I do love what that Gonzaga team's got Creighton has shown me more than I expected um there's still a lot more here. Marquette lose or beats Kansas State. Kansas State was only one of two teams that lost to a not-ranked foe. Granted, Kansas State was an underdog. Marcus Howard drops 45. That's one of GP's five favorite players in the sport. Your Memphis Tigers, GP, were actually up early on Texas Tech, but Texas Tech comes back, wins 78-67, so not too much drama there. Villanova was in a fight for 40 minutes against LaSalle at the Palestra. It was bizarre. I was prepared. I was ready to write about Villanova dropping that game. It pulled it out, but it's it's weird, man. Villanova, there's just some weird juju going on with that team. They win 85-78 GP, but it was bizarre. Michigan, by the way, has I, I maintain Michigan has looked as good, if not better, than anyone in the country. Considering their opponents, considering the style of wins, they had no issues with Purdue. They got to win there. And then elsewhere, there was some wonkiness um, with Oregon, Houston. Houston wins. Oregon came back late. But uh, but the one that was a little freaky-deaky, Duke had no issues with Stetson. Um, Nevada USC will get to. Kansas beat Stanford, GP, in overtime by six points. And I'll let you take it from here. That was one that Kansas very well could have lost very, very easily, as as vulnerable as almost any team, but they didn't because LeGerald Vick is suddenly like, we haven't gotten into our you know player of the year rankings kind of deal, but at this point, he's got to be a top five contender. If we were doing player of the year rankings between the night the season started and December 2nd, LeGerald Vick would be pretty high on that list, perhaps at the, at the top of that list. Like you mentioned, Kansas wins 90-84 in overtime over a Stanford team. Uh, inside Allen Fieldhouse uh, at tip-off, uh, Kansas was a 20-point favorite. So this was not supposed to be close, but they had to play 45 minutes to get the W. Um, LeGerald Vick hits a three in the final 10 seconds to tie the score. 
that creates overtime. From there, Kansas takes control. Vic, my little homie from Memphis, finishes with 27 points. He's now averaging a team-high 20.8 points per game. He's shooting 59.6% from three-point range on the season. Now, he's always been a good three-point shooter. I think he's a career, like, 37 38% three-point shooter. But 59.6 is ridiculous. Now, nobody thinks he's going to keep this up, but he is through six games at 59.6% from three-point range, and it's not unlimited attempts. I think he was 7 of 11 from three in the win over Stanford. So uh, you tell me, on a scale of one to Bob Knight just ordered bacon for dessert, mm. how wild is it that LeGerald Vick is doing what he's doing, considering that in the middle of June, nobody, Bill Self included, thought LeGerald Vick would even be on this Kansas team? Yeah, it's 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 borderline bacon territory, okay? Um, I don't even mm. want to say, like, he almost went. Like, he was gone. Like, nobody thought that he was coming back. And if you watch the Stanford game, you watch what he did, which I did in person the previous week against Tennessee when he went on a personal 8 nothing run, which was critical late in that second half. Like, Vic is proving to be the singular um, NBA Jam-esque on-fire kind of guy that, is, that has helped Kansas remain undefeated without him. I think you can make an easy argument that Kansas has two losses, potentially even three. His inclusion on this roster is proving way more vital than anyone thought, and people even thought that he would be an important player, but nothing like this. He's the only reliable, consistent three-point threat Kansas has at this point. That's not totally common for Bill Self's teams. He's been critical there. And what was nuts was so... Like, as, as Vic is helping Kansas just save itself, Stanford should have had this game. Um, what made Saturday so riveting overall was you had the drama of the college football championship games. And before we get out of this podcast, GP, at the very end, I wanted to touch on something with the CFP with you just at the end. So remind me about that before we close up shop. But as you had uh, the SEC title game going down in Georgia and Alabama th uh, in, in a good one in Alabama going Alabama and winning out and all that um, – I'm I'm here watching Stanford Kansas split with another game on on the old Apple TV uh, watch ESPN app. I can't remember what the other one was, but I was convinced that Kansas was going to go down. and And Vic just simply came up huge. He had a he had a playoff a curl a deep three that was monumental in keeping Kansas in this game. So what he has done has been uh, just unpredictable and just purely from an on the court standpoint. Um, just spectacular. He is he has grown into the kind of player at this point in the season that I just never thought he'd ever be at the college level. And while there's so much road to pave, Parrish, if he's even, let's call it 80% of what he's been at this point, like I think he could actually salvage something of an NBA career here, like just in terms of maybe get drafted or, or make a roster. That wasn't going to be there for him last year, but if he's going to turn into this, even at the age he's at, uh, he's certainly got a shot because he is this team's alpha right now. There's no question that he's helped himself with, with, with NBA people. I mean, when you're a 6'5 athlete who can shoot from three, like there's a, there's a job for you. Um, but, and I don't bring this up to bring up old stuff, but I do bring it up because it matters. He does have that domestic violence allegation against yes. him a few years ago. And I can tell you, when NBA scouts that I know, that I've developed relationships with over the years, um, you know, when they would call to ask me about Vic 
and the reason they would call me is because they assume that because I'm from Memphis and he's from Memphis that I will that I that I have some maybe something that that could be worthwhile to them. The truth is I don't really know LeGerald Vick that well. Um I've met him but I don't I don't really know him. But my point is the questions are about like what kind of guy is he? Is he a bad guy? You know, cuz that matters in the NBA more than it's ever mattered and it matters in the uh, NFL more than it's ever mattered. I mean, the, the dude who ran, uh, who led the NFL in rushing last season and is an incredible weapon for a Super Bowl contender this season just got released over a domestic violence situation. And so there were a number of things working against LeGerald in last year's draft, last season, I guess the 2018 draft. But but the 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 off the court stuff is is an issue as well and it, it's something that he's going to have to a overcome and b convince nba people that that are just blips in his past and i don't mean to to diminish or or discount what he was accused of doing i don't mean to refer to it as a blip but you get my point mm-hmm. that it was a bad moment whatever happened because there is some uh, uh I, I don't think there's ever been a clear cut version of of what happened between he and the, and the young woman but whatever did happen, he's going to have to be able to convince NBA people that that it's in his past, that nothing like that would ever, would ever happen again. But if he if he's capable of doing that, and and playing at this level, there, there's no question he, he'll he'll be in an NBA uniform someday. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Parrish, because it absolutely is part of this. Um, we can you know be awed by what Vic has done on the court so far this season, but we still have to acknowledge that um, the allegations have been made against him, and we don't have all of the details about that. It is is just it is a part of his story um, as a person, as a, as a human being, as a player at Kansas, and so we are continually aware of that. Uh, it would be wrong of us to otherwise, you know, frankly, try and whitewash that out of what's happened there. It's it's absolutely something, and it. it came uh you know the, the Kansas overall uh, off the court stuff for the past two years there's been a lot of, of a lot of bad and negative um and worrisome stuff and the Vic part of that in general yes it is it is certainly part of it um but you know it's as can often happen with those kind of situations uh the real details we still don't know all of them and the fact that he is playing at this point after being uh reviewed by the school um Clearly, Kansas is satisfied to this point, and uh, he is he has clearly made an impact from a from a player standpoint. There's just no, there's just no there's no doubt about it. Um, they are way more uh, effective and successful as a basketball team with him than they would have been otherwise. Which again, to circle back, just makes it remarkable that it, it, you know Bill Self wasn't sure if he wanted him on this on this team, and LeGerald had to convince Bill as the story goes to, to allow him to come back. And now, you know, he might end up being the MVP for a Kansas team that wins a 15th straight big 12 title and, and maybe goes to another final four, maybe wins a, a national championship. It's still early, but he's been tremendous early. One last thing on that Kansas Stanford game. I don't want to say Kansas was lucky to win, but, but certainly they were in a bad spot. They were down three to a, uh, 20 point underdog on their home court in the final 10 seconds. That's not a great spot to be. Um, and I had some people uh, point out, like, hey, Kansas just barely beat Stanford. 
uh, you know, Gonzaga pulls away from Creighton. Gonzaga still eight zero with that win over Duke. Why don't you flip Gonzaga and Kansas? Because I have Kansas number one and Gonzaga number two. Even if the AP poll has Gonzaga number one and Kansas number two, and I'm fine with that. Like I didn't use last week's poll attacks column to to bang on people who have Gonzaga number one. I won't use tomorrow's to do the same thing. It's perfectly reasonable to have Gonzaga number one. It's just also perfectly reasonable to have to have uh, Kansas number one. It's also perfectly reasonable to have Michigan number one, perfectly reasonable to have Virginia number one. Um, but I, 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 to those people who are harping on Kansas was in a tough game with a bad team, I will remind you that I was in Maui when Gonzaga was in a one-possession game in the final 10 seconds with an Illinois team that is now 2-5. and five. So I'm not going to say these things happen to everybody, but these things are going to happen even to great teams. They're going to end up in in uh, uncomfortable situations with teams that should not be able to stay on the court with them. Yes, it happened to Kansas this weekend, but it happened to Gonzaga just a, just a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned Nevada earlier, and if I remember correctly, we were on a podcast, I don't know, it might have been last Sunday night, honestly, and your rule is we're not going to discuss undefeated stuff until it's at least January, and, and I, I mostly subscribe to that as well, but I will say that last week I said, if Nevada is able to go to Loyola Chicago and go to USC and not only win both games, but like convincingly get two double digit wins, for instance, then you got to really start thinking about how good this team is. And, and if it does have a chance to actually, you know, head into selection Sunday with a zero in the loss column, and then they went out and they beat Loyola Chicago 79 65, and then they go out and they beat USC 73 61. That's two double digit wins against top 75 Ken Palm teams. They're now 8 0. And like I said, I know you hate the undefeated talk before January, but you have to admit it's looking very possible if Nevada beats Arizona State this upcoming Friday because by my by my calculations, Nevada would then be 9-0, and you really don't need a calculator to figure that out. They're 8-0 now. If they win, they're going to go to 9-0. But by my calculations, they would then have zero additional games against current top 50 Ken Palm teams left on the schedule. And that based on the – the projections at Ken Palm right now, they would likely, Nevada, be a double-digit favorite in all but two games the rest of the way and never lower than an eight-point favorite in any game. So shouts to Muss and shouts to the Martin Twins. Yeah, this goes back to our conversation. You thought it was more likely uh, that Virginia would lose than Nevada, um, particularly against Maryland. Now, Virginia pulled that out. Um, I thought Nevada – could, but it was up against it just a little bit with at Loyola, at USC, and they still have undefeated Arizona State on Friday. Arizona State, by the way, is really staring down something. They have Nevada. They get a break then, but they have at Georgia, at Vanderbilt. Maybe those teams don't make the NCAA tournament. It's still two road games against power conference teams, and then they get the Jayhawks in uh, Tempe uh, later this month. So we'll see what Arizona State can do. But Nevada rebounded really, really well. Um, USC looks solid early. Um, Kevin Porter Jr., who is going to be a one-and-done player and is probably, in my opinion, going to be a top-15 pick in June, um, he didn't he didn't play much. In fact, I think he played like six minutes in this game. I don't know if he plays 26 minutes if, if USC necessarily wins. Nevada definitely just uh, similar to 
it's funny, like similar to Gonzaga, although the games weren't the, the game styles weren't that close or or that much alike. But uh, given the two powers out west right now, um, and sure, shouts to uh, Arizona State and Arizona, who we'll get to in just a minute here. They're also playing relatively well. But Nevada and Gonzaga are undefeated. Both were up against it on the road on Saturday, and then they both had moments where they just kind of. It just clicked, and then they were off and running. Uh, Nevada pulled away, looked impressive while they were doing it. Man, like I tell you, GP, when Nevada's really going and playing they want to play the way they want to play, um, top five entertaining team in college basketball, unquestionably. Just good size, good athletes. They play really well together, and some of that's because they got a lot of transfers who sat out last year. These dudes have been going at it in practice for well over a year at this point, and it really, really shows. So, yes, um, I don't have too much to add from the game other than that, and, and I will say this, try not to repeat this fact too much throughout the season. Um, when you're a program like Nevada and you're not a top 10 team every season, it's frankly acceptable if you enter a year with top 10 expectations and you stumble once or twice in the first six weeks of the season. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No one would fault you for that, but that hasn't happened. Nevada has met you can even argue exceeded what was expected of it coming in. Testament to the coaching staff and the players there. But not every team would be like that. Nevada has. And they are definitely worthy of just sitting at the table with all of the other elite teams in college basketball at this point. I've been on this since July, basically. I firmly believe that if you had put all those players in a power conference uniform, it would have been the preseason number one team. So what if it wasn't? Still got a shot at a one seed. Still has a shot at winning the national championship. That team is loaded and currently right now has the number one offense according to Ken Palm. Some of that is adjusted with projections for the rest of the season, but they're looking pretty good. They continue to win. It'll probably be a wrestle between them and Duke for number one offense overall. You know what Nevada reminds me of? 2008 Memphis. Uh, it's a team that, that, that 2007 Memphis went to the Elite Eight, but you know, won a conference championship, won a conference tournament championship, goes to the Elite Eight, brings back a bunch of experienced, really good college basketball players, and then adds a five-star freshman in Derrick Rose. What did this Nevada team do? Wins a conference championship, wins a conference tournament, goes to the Sweet 16, not the Elite Eight, but brings back most of the important pieces from a very good college basketball team, very good college basketball players, and then they go out and enroll a five-star freshman in Jordan Brown. Now, I'm not trying to pretend Jordan Brown is Derrick Rose, hmm. but, I mean, the, the programs line up very similarly. I think Nevada was built a little quicker than those great Memphis teams were. It took John Calipari a while to get it going. But, but former NBA coach, check. A bunch of really good college players. You know, Caleb Martin, uh, uh, Caleb Martin, Jordan Caroline, Cody Martin. How, how different is that than Chris Douglas Roberts, Joey Dorsey, Antonio Anderson? Check. Bring them back. Um, from a team that won a whole bunch of games. Cut nets, won trophies, advanced to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. Check, got all that. Then enroll a five-star freshman. Check, got all that. 2018-19 Nevada, not necessarily in the way it, they play, but in the way it's built, constructed, looks a lot like 2008 Memphis. <laughs> You're, the, uh, the comparison actually does make a decent amount of sense. But I have to believe we've got a, a few listeners out there that when they heard you drop Memphis as the team you wanted to compare it to, they're like, of course. Well, like, I mean, but it, it, what part of it doesn't make sense? It's a team from outside of the power structure. Memphis was playing in a, in a piss-poor conference USA at the time. Now Nevada's in a piss-poor Mountain West conference. Former NBA coach in charge, John Calipari, Eric Musselman, they both checked that box. Bring back a lot of good pieces. 
Joey Dorsey and Chris Douglas Roberts. Then it add a five-star freshman to the equation. For Nevada, it's, it's uh, Jordan Brown. For Memphis, it was Derrick Rose. What part doesn't fit? No. It, I, <laughs> I can't believe I'm the first person to think of this. I can believe you're the first person to think this. That's our first piss pour on the podcast in uh, maybe ever, and we went back to back there. So shouts to that. And uh, no, it's it is 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 totally valid. But I just I love that I love that you went there. That's all. You notice I started with my little homie from Memphis, LeGerald Vic, too, right? Oh, I know you you've got this completely covered at this point. Um, but yeah, no, listen. Nevada is continually worth watching. If for whatever reason you have found yourself not trying to find them because it's not a traditionally good team, I assure you you want to watch this group, who has been good and fun to watch for a few years now, but they are obviously climbing their apex mountain at this point. Um, We mentioned on Friday's podcast that uh, Arizona-UConn was on Sunday, and that's because it was on Sunday. Arizona goes to UConn and wins. So now Sean Miller's team 6-2. The only losses are neutral court losses in Maui to Gonzaga and Auburn. Now, they got run off the court, I think, in both those games. But either way, the 6-2 and two with no losses to bad teams. They also own a win over Iowa State in addition to this win over UConn. And this is probably Sean Miller's worst roster since his first season at Arizona, which was the 2009-2010 season. But well before he was known as a great recruiter and – I know people out there rolling their eyes. I know that he's had a, he's got a a former um, associate head coach like facing federal prison time. I got you, but he was still he developed a reputation as a great recruiter. Before that, he was known throughout college basketball as a really good coach. And so far this season, he's doing a great job with a roster that that most people didn't think was going to be able to do this. I, I didn't have him as an NCAA tournament team in the preseason. Arizona looks like an NCAA tournament team right now. They do, and full disclosure, I did not get to see this game because, as I mentioned on the previous podcast, I was actually in MetLife Stadium watching my Chicago Bears um, lose to the Giants. Expectedly, they were due for a loss. Giants were due for a win. Shout-out to the Vikings for keeping things decent and losing to the Patriots. So I didn't get a chance to uh, to watch this game because the Bears had to go out and lose. Still worth it. Um, Arizona at 6-2. and two. By the way, Bears, my little homie Anthony Miller got another touchdown today. He's from Memphis. And you know who's even a littler homer than that is Tariq Cohen, who threw that touchdown pass to Anthony Miller. Now, you want to talk not, about Not from Memphis, though, so who cares? <laughs> I know. I care. Look, shout out to Tariq Cohen, man. He's the littlest of little homies. He might be the littlest homie in the NFL. So, he's my kind of guy. I like him a lot. Um, Zona 6-2. and two. And, again, I will turn this into a Bears podcast anytime. Say the word. Um... 76-72 at UConn. Listen, I don't think UConn's going to make the NCAA tournament, but I think UConn, at the end of the season, winning at their place is going to be like, okay, you know what, just solid. Good good win there. These are the kind of things where if it just adds up, you know, Arizona can, can bump on in. And as Arizona fans will remember all too clearly, we both expected this team not to make the NCAA tournament. Hey, maybe that happens. We'll see. But at six and two at this point, if I would have asked Arizona fans, will you take six and two, or will you chance it otherwise? Maybe you'll go eight. No, maybe you'll go two and six. They would have taken the six two. At least I think the majority would have taken the six and two at the start of the season. Losses to Gonzaga and Auburn and Maui. Um, you know, understandable defeats there. You get an Iowa State win, which is obviously going to age well, I would think. And things are going uh, well on the court. 
for Sean Miller and his program at this point. They have a, a road game in Alabama in, uh, in a week. We'll see how they fare there. But they are they are setting up well. I would say they are setting up pretty well to be a three-loss team max heading into league play. And if you're an Arizona fan, that's about the best you could have asked for heading into this season. Um, it wasn't all a bad week, though. For, and by the way, we should say about Arizona before I move on. Um, obviously, they have the roster they have right now because they lost all five starters. And then with the FBI cloud hovering above the program, Sean Miller's uh, future, at least in question, it, it cost him a it cost him a recruit. It, it cost them recruits that cost them a heralded recruiting class. I think they still ended up with a top twenty five recruiting class, but in Previous years, they were like top five, top three, right there behind Duke, Kentucky. Duke, Kentucky was clear one, two, but Arizona was right there below them as the best recruiting basketball program, not led by John Calipari or Mike Krzyzewski. They're getting back to that, by the way. Um, They've got the number one recruiting class in America uh, right now. Uh, Two five-star prospects, most notably Josh Green, a 6'6 wing from IMG Academy. So... Um, Sean got caught with this roster for reasons I explained, but he's going to start having a pro- that team look more like the Arizona teams we grew accustomed to uh, very, very quickly. Whatever issues that FBI investigation brought, it looks like it's going to be issues that cost them one recruiting class, and that's about it. Uh, back to UConn. Wasn't all a bad previous seven days for them because they did get a, a commitment from a top 35 player in the class of t- 2019 a cook a cook he picked UConn gonna roll enroll at the semester but he's gonna redshirt the rest of this season he's gonna begin playing for UConn in the 2019-20 season Uh, how big of a deal is this Norlander I think it's a decent deal. Not 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 crazy big, but uh, solid. Obviously, listen, you take over a program, Hurley, you got to try and restore the roar there, and you can get wins like this on the recruiting trail, similar to what Chris Mack has been able to do at Louisville. Um, I think it, it really just establishes some solid uh, recruiting mojo. I don't know if I want to say momentum, but just as you head into the second recruiting period, which coaches, you know, once you hit – the calendar, new calendar year. You're basically that's what you're what you're what you're chasing there. Uh, it's important. There was a hope among, frankly, UConn fans thought they were in the driver's seat to land a cook a cook, and that was what the crystal ball at two four seven sports had. And there was a hope that maybe, hey, listen, maybe we're gonna get this guy, you know, you know, into the fold. Well, UConn didn't have an open scholarship. He's in fact uh, a cook a cook is on a. Um, student aid financial aid agreement and then he'll go on scholarship for next season but he'll be in practice will it's it's a Hamadou Diallo type of situation Kentucky fans will remember he came on and there was initial speculation that uh, Diallo might suit up for the Wildcats he didn't he waited until the next season and then went to the NBA after that so it's a good deal for Hurley and for UConn I do think that Hurley will turn that to where they make the tournament in his second year um, but just a nice little uh, a nice little piece of news there and if and Unless you got a, a a rejoinder on my cook a cook thoughts, I uh, I wanted to toss uh, toss something out at you that has nothing to do with basketball. Well, I did not want to pass on an opportunity to mention Memphis. So real quickly, one of the things you know, particularly when you go on radio in a AAC market, people will ask you is like, what does the American Athletic Conference have to do to to get equal to the Big East or to get talked about like the Big East? Some AAC, AAC people will tell you we just got a branding problem. Like, you know, if we were called the Big East instead of the AAC, then then we would be thought of it differently. I don't know if that's true, but I do think the name Big East carries 
um, carries a certain level of clout that the American does not because the American is so new and frankly not a great name for a conference, at least in my opinion. But my answer to that has always been you need, or at least in the past couple of years been, you need Wichita State, Cincinnati, SMU to continue being what they've been in recent years, and you need UConn to be what UConn's supposed to be, and you need Memphis to be what Memphis is supposed to be. And over the past couple of weeks, UConn and Memphis have taken a Wiseman, the consensus number one player, class of 2019, and then uh, this a cook. And so um, th- those things might not cause big waves in certain leagues because in the AAC, you know, multiple programs are signing top 35 guys. And in the Big 12, multiple programs are signing top 35 guys. But in the AAC, uh, that's not really the case. That might be maybe just reserved for for Memphis and, and UConn going forward. But, you know, those programs are back to getting – are on their way to getting back to what they ought to be. Even if they're not there right now, um, the past couple of weeks have been – three weeks, I should say, probably – have been uh, big steps in the right direction on the uh, recruiting trail. All right. You, but- me- you mentioned you want to go college football playoff. Go college football playoff. We're going to do that in just a second. But I actually want to do a, a little uh, guess the celebrity game because uh, on occasion you uh, you are able to, uh, to name drop a celebrity sighting uh, along your trails. And I actually had one. Um, uh, my my way of making this from college basketball to a Dave Matthews Band concert is this. One, I saw a DMB Friday night at Madison Square Garden. I don't know if you ever get this with FedEx Forum or not, GP, but it's weird how the garden – so I you know, cover games in there all the time. The building actually just it, – it feels different when, it, when it's a music show, and I've seen plenty of bands there. That's always a – a weird thing like when i step into the garden to cover a game it's always cool and that, that when that building's buzzing during a big game it's awesome but when i step into the garden i'm going to see a concert it feels like an even bigger environment have you ever kind of gotten that dichotomy of a feeling or to you is just an arena arena no matter what's it, happening there fedex forum is just a basketball arena you know the garden is the garden now i've seen some great shows at fedex forum i saw paul mccartney there um but to me fedex forum is just a very nice state-of-the-art nba arena whereas the garden is the garden. Like when I step into the garden, whether it's for a basketball game or a concert, I feel like this is this is a different place because it is a different place. You know, people we and you and I have talked about this privately before, not that it needs to be a private conversation. We just never brought it to the podcast. But, you know, people talk about, you know, we're going to bring this conference tournament to to Brooklyn and Brooklyn is New York. It is technically New York City. But there's a difference between being at Barclays and Madison Square Garden. You know, being – I think you could take any power conference uh, tournament plus the Big – Power Five plus the Big East. I think you could take any conference tournament there, and it would be awesome at the Garden because there's just something about being in the middle of Manhattan that, that changes everything. And I, I, I think that's a, that's a special building. That's one that when I, when I walk inside there, I still recognize – you know, this is what they call the most famous arena in the world. Yeah, no doubt about it. So uh, caught caught DMB there Friday night, solid show. Uh, Warren Haynes dropped in to cover uh, – DMB often will cover Cortez the Killer by Neil Young when Warren Haynes guests, and it's, it is the greatest Cortez the Killer cover DMB has ever done. If you are if you are happy to listen to this podcast and are a, a DMB fan, just search that on YouTube. It is an incredible version. But – Behind me, so one row behind me and three seats to my left was 
a fairly well-known celebrity, and I want to try and give you, uh, this is going to be for you and the listeners. I did not say hello because, frankly, I'm just not that kind of person, but I am a fan of this of this person's work. Um, so I want to try and give you five guesses to see who, f- if you can guess who it is, because uh, this is a rare opportunity for me to actually play the, uh, the celebrity sighting game. So first clue would be, um, and no cheating, no looking this up, uh, known for his comedy. Known for his comedy. Uh, Chris Rock is known for his comedy. He is known for his comedy. Chris Rock was not one row behind me at I, the Dave I, Matthews. I went with Chris Rock because he's from. he lives in New York. And so I've actually bumped into Chris Rock in New York City. So I thought maybe you did too. A quasi hint. I won't count this one. I do not know if this particular celebrity lives in New York um, or not. I know that this uh, person is not from New York originally. Um but we'll get to that in a, in a later clue. Uh, clue number two is has come into celebrity in the past six to eight years. Come into celebrity six to pa- uh, past six to eight years. Known for his comedy. Aziz Ansari. Not bad, but no. Incorrect. A third clue, which might not make it even easier, but uh, I think this particular uh Actor slash comedian uh, was known for the fact that he came out of the Second City like so many others. Came out of the Second City like so many others. Stephen Colbert. No, but that would have been pretty amazing because I would have been like, yo, CBS, Stephen Colbert, it's the network of stars. I'm Matt Norlander. Okay, anyway. Um, America's most awarded network. That's right. Fourth is... Uh, all right, fourth is is from Detroit, but I don't think that's going to help you too too much. Yeah, from Detroit. Is it Big Sean? It is not. I wonder how many listeners have it at this point. The fifth is this: is he is one half of a highly regarded, well respected comedy duo although each member now does their own thing as well but you say one name you kind of think the other when you say it out loud uh seth rogan no and who is the other half of seth rogan i feel like he's always like with somebody who's he with uh james franco right i mean yeah but no What? Yeah, I think Seth Rogen is part of a comedy duo with James Franco. Definitely not from Detroit. He's almost he's known for his uh, the fact that he's from Canada. I, ad- I admit, I admit that last guess was a bad guess. Okay. I, I was just trying to think of of uh, I was trying to think of comedy people associated with other comedy people. Jonah Hill. Again, who is Jonah Hill's sidekick? Is Seth it Seth Rogen? Yeah, Seth Rogen's sidekick with everybody. It's not Jonah Hill. How about um, how about their comedy sketch show uh, has produced many a gif, many a meme, including the greatest sketch about co- uh, football players' names ever. Oh, God. Key and Peele? One of them? Is that Correct. right? Yeah. Michael Keegan Key. Ran- yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, random and... I- I think he's hilarious, by the way. But, uh, but like, it was one of those things where I, I caught him, and I thought, there's no way he's at the show right now. And then, sure enough, and then, like, two, three people came up to him and started talking to him, and he was awesome about it, but I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm just, I, I, I think we're the same. In fact, I think you've even mentioned this on the podcast recently, like, just not the kind of person, even if you respect a, a particular musician, actor, whomever's work, like, just, 
in public, it's not going to happen. And with the exception, I might have like four or five people, but uh, but I wasn't going to do. That. I was going to let him enjoy the show and seemingly enjoy the show he did. So anyway, that's my. Uh, I don't I don't usually mess with people. I can I can count on one hand when I've taken the time to actually stop somebody and say, "Hey, man, uh, just wanted to say hello. I just wanted to say I'm a big. Uh, I really enjoy what you do." Uh, Ryan, I did Ryan Adams one time. I would bump into Ryan Adams at a bar in Nashville, mm-hmm. and I took time. I mean, it was right after Heartbreaker, and my heart was broken, so it was perfect. And so uh, he was cool. He was just like, "Hey, thank you very much." He was fine. I mean, we didn't sit there and like talk for twenty minutes, but he was cool. For I, I, I think I might have said this on the podcast. On my way to Maui at LAX, I was in the Delta Sky Room, yes. and uh, Olivia Wilde was there with Jason Sudeikis. Now, I, there's nobody. There might be nobody on the planet I'd rather talk to than Olivia Wilde. But I just, uh, I didn't, I, yeah, I'm not going to bother. She's there with her husband and her two kids. What am I going to do? I know what it's like to be in a Delta Sky Club with kids. You don't want, you don't want people bothering you. Just trying to make sure your kids aren't throwing cheese everywhere. Yes. So I don't, really, yeah, I don't really bother folks too much. Yeah, we talked about that thing on the on the podcast. In fact, that's what I was uh, unintentionally referencing. Okay, um, college football. Pl- oh, I, oh, a concert. Uh, bump into not even a celebrity. It's just funny. Watch the throne in New Orleans several years ago. Maybe like. December 2011, something like that. I'm on like fourth row, something like that. Third row right in front of me, literally right in front of me. Worst person you could have right in front of you, Tyrus Thomas. <laughs> well, how do I get Tyrus Thomas right in front of me at Watch the Throne? That's, that's you know, brutal. You know I had I'm... no idea who was coming that Tyrus Thomas was not <laughs> on my top 4,000 of names that were I scrambling. think at the time he was playing for the Pelicans. I think he was playing in New Orleans. Somebody can look this up. But, yeah, or no, he's even if he wasn't, he's from Louisiana. He played at LSU, so maybe that was his connection there. He might actually be from New Orleans. But I get there, and, uh, yes, like – Seven foot Tyrus Thomas standing right in front of me. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I couldn't even see Jay Z have the concert. Um. Okay. So college football playoff, and I wanted to link it to college basketball too. Um. I I wanted two things here. One, I guess we'll just I, I threw out a, a poll on Twitter, and I knew Duke would win. Um. But it wasn't quite as big of a margin as I thought it would. So Alabama comes back and beats Georgia on Saturday. Locks up number one in college football playoff, and Alabama's just – it is in the midst of the most dominant run. It feels like the most dominant run in college football history considering how good they are, the modern era, all that stuff. Um, I think you can actually make some parallels to Wooden's UCLA teams, even though they're different sports and of different generations. So I asked uh, the general public – and granted, I have – way more people that follow me for college basketball than college football, but I think there's also just a lot of general sports fans that follow me. I said, which team would you rather see lose in a national final or a title game situation? Uh, Duke won, but only by 62 to 38%. I actually thought it might be about 80 to 20. Um, I bring that up to say, Parrish, uh, do you agree, if not understand, with the Alabama fatigue that is out there because it's not like Duke. Duke, there are many reasons and ways people have found to hate Duke over the decades, whereas Alabama, maybe you don't like the way Nick Saban is pissed off at the media all the time. Maybe you don't like uh, the SEC's arrogance overall and take it out on Alabama because it represents the conference annually in the college football playoff. Uh, for me, Alabama, now Tua is the exception, but it has had a simple, boring, gear-grinding dominance. I actually like uh, when we have 
teams and sports that can lord over as villains, but Alabama to me has always been just so methodical to the point of being boring. That's why I have uh, some Bama fatigue. So I just wanted to lay that on on the table for you and see if uh, if you can agree with that or if you are a, a staunch supporter of, of all things Bama and what it's done and if it's overall just been a good thing for college football. I, there are people who hate Duke. Like you can say it's 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 goofy. But it doesn't make it less true. There are people out there who, like, actually hate Duke. Like, they spell Duke on Twitter, D-O-O-K. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, those guys, right? They, they, I don't know that people hate Alabama, except Auburn fans. I think people respect Alabama. Like, you respect – like, how about this? With Duke all the time, people will try to tell you they're overrated. Duke, oh, Duke's overrated. Ah, you're only, you only say it about Duke because, like – Everybody loves Duke, Dukey V, all this stuff, right? People don't ever really say Alabama's overrated. I, at least I don't see it. I think people just respect Alabama. So, yeah I, yeah, I think people would love to see Duke and Mike Krzyzewski lose in a championship game. I think they would love to see Alabama lose for different reasons because it'd be like, oh, wow, Alabama lost. But with Duke, there would be some joy uh, attached to it. I think folks just appreciate Alabama, mostly just just admire Alabama for what Nick's been able to build there. All right. My other thing with the college football playoff is if you want to have any sort of commentary, and frankly, I think we should have just a quick convo on this because it is comparable um, just in terms of college basketball and its tournament. Let's just talk briefly about the selection process and the final four teams there. All right. Bama won Clemson 2, Notre Dame 3, Oklahoma 4. Uh, I have a two-pronged question for you, and I'm actually going to – I'll throw the first one out at you, have you respond, and I'll do the second one. Um, On the note of Alabama continuing to win, whereas the NCAA tournament, and we can have Blue Bloods, GP, 1C, 2C, 3C that are reliable every year, even still, you'll get a Nevada in an occasional year. You'll get like an Auburn or whatever. You just get enough spice on the top line, and then just you have more teams. So the tournament's always – it always looks different. There are always, you know, 43 different storylines every Selection Sunday. College football is a more popular sport. Football is a more popular sport, but it has a smaller field. Do you think it's a good thing for college football that it's, you know, it's just Bama – Clemson again, uh, and even Oklahoma is tossed into that like Southern feel. You live in the South, so I just wonder if you th- – it, it is what it is. They're awesome programs co- co- you know, led by awesome coaches, but is this a good thing for college football, the fact that there's been a playoff for, what, four or five years now and only ten different schools have been involved in the CFP? Um, I don't know if it's a, quote, good thing, but it's an I don't care thing mm. because I, I, I just want – you know, Alabama earns it every year. You know, every year that Alabama's been in there, they should be in there. Every year that Clemson's been in there, they should be in there. When they play for the national championship, it's because they won to get the opportunity to to do that. So if you are if you are tired of watching Alabama and Clemson play in the college football playoff, then like be better than them. And and so far, at least lately, nobody's been able to to do that. What I think is actually bad for college football is the four team playoff. It, it's just it. It's going to be – I can remember when we had the BCS, and I don't want to pretend these ideas are unique to me. They're not. They're just like um, – they're not unique to anybody. Uh, you know, all smart people basically agree on this. Uh, when we had the BCS, people would scream, well, you can't have a playoff because it will ruin the regular season. And then smart people would say that's that's ridiculous, and here's why, A, B, C, D, E, so on and so forth. And then we got the 14 playoff, and guess what? The regular season's awesome. Nobody, it, it's not ruined. And so now you say what we really need is an 18 playoff. You know, the five power five conference champs 
and then we need three at-large bids so that you're not leaving out somebody like Central Florida. I don't know that Central Florida is actually one of the four best teams or one of the eight best teams, but I know that having a mainstream sport in America where you can win all your games and not have a path to a national championship is just fundamentally wrong. It doesn't exist anywhere else. In Major League Baseball, in any given year, every manager can start the season saying if we win more games than um, – you know, if we, I'll just keep it simple. If we win all of our games, we will be champions. In the NFL, it doesn't matter where you're projected. You can sit down with your team at the beginning of the season and say, hey, if we win all of our games, we will be champions. Same thing in every sport, college basketball included. It doesn't matter if you're a SWAC team. Mm-hmm. If you're a SWAC member, if you win all of your games, you're going to be champions at the end. You'll hold the trophy from Mark Emmer. In college football, it's just not true. Central Florida has won all of its games two straight years. No path to the championship whatsoever. That's wrong. That's why you go to eight, so that everybody actually has a chance. Plus, it's just who doesn't want more playoff football? <laughs> like, like, why would you be against it? Doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, yeah. so that's the big problem with with college football. And I promise you, because right now people say, well, you can't go to eight for this reason or that reason. They're all dumb reasons. Trust me, if you are saying that college football can't go to an 18 playoff and you if you and either if you're saying that one of two things you either are somebody who's making a whole lot of money off of the way the system is in place right now or you're dumb one of the two i don't you either got to be in charge of the way the system goes right now and making crazy money off of it or you're not a smart person because when we eventually get to eight and we will eventually get to eight everybody will say oh my god this is so much better why didn't we do this X amount of years ago? That's the problem with college football. Thrilled to hear you say that, Parrish, because I didn't know if we'd that, – that you kind of got into my second of the two-prong question there. I didn't know if we'd agree on that. It's a farce that UCF, who, by the way, straddles a fascinating line because from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, UCF, this potential Cinderella story. UCF, from an enrollment standpoint, is one of the largest universities in America, and it's pulling from a top-two state of college football talent in the country. It's not plucky Rhode Island come out of nowhere or Montana coming out of nowhere. Like, that is a legitimate school, and it wouldn't shock me at all if we looked up in 15 years, Parrish, regardless of the conference UCF is in and whatever the conference structure might look like in, in college football, and if we didn't see that program as a year-over-year perennial top 25 kind of team, it's just because the American as a football league is still trying to establish itself that UCF is considered on the outside looking in. It's a joke, man. They win 25 straight, and yes, each season has to be evaluated individually, but step back from that and say, okay, here's a program that in consecutive years won every single game that was put in front of them, and it's not going to have the chance. It's not allowed to sit at the table. It's a joke that UCF was still put behind Michigan after UCF beat Memphis with its backup quarterback. It's 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 just ridiculous. It needs to go to an 18 playoff. I think it will eventually. I don't have an, an idea on a timeline like that, but I'll tell you what. Once that does happen, even though the inventory of games is so much less than the NCAA tournament, that's when college football's playoff will really be able to go shoulder to shoulder with college basketball. Because when you've got a sport as popular as football is and as fanatical in certain parts of the country as it is, you give that give the first four 
on campus events, the first, the top four teams, the first round, and then keep the bowl system in place. It seems so obvious. Allow all the major conferences, and then if you've got a group of five team that goes undefeated, they get a shot, and you can have these potential Cinderella-esque teams that break in. It's the perfect situation for college football. It doesn't detract from the regular season whatsoever, and I think we're just going to get to that point eventually, and then even a decade later, people are going to look back and say, what was this sport doing for decade after decade, eon after eon? Why did it take so long to get to this? It's the ideal setup, and I'm glad that we agree with that. Just two more things on college football, and then I, prom- I promise you we'll be done with this. Um, first, on the on the playoff, it's going to be fun. I can't. I'll watch it. I, you know, I won't miss it. It's going to be Alabama against Oklahoma, Clemson, and Notre Dame. But I don't know how if you're George and Kirby Smart, you're not furious right now because the college football playoff selection committee a week ago said that Georgia was the fourth best team in the country. They said Alabama's one, uh, Clemson's two, Notre Dame's three, Georgia's four. So that's where we were a week ago. Then Georgia goes out and plays Alabama SEC championship game. They're leading the most of the game. They're tied with them final two minutes, and then they end up losing about 100 seconds left, I guess, on a Jalen Hurts touchdown. Now, you try to explain to me how losing on a neutral field in the final two minutes to the number one team in the country that has beaten everybody this year by three touchdowns shows that you're not the fourth best team in the country. It makes no sense. Now, what people will say is, well, that was, because I got this on Twitter, well, you have to understand, people on, love, people on Twitter love to, to help you understand stuff. What you have to understand is that that was their essentially quarterfinal playoff game. You know, that was that was Georgia. Georgia was in the playoff. That was the quarterfinals. You win it, you get to go. And Alabama would have probably went right with them. But if you lose it, then you're done. You got your shot and it's over. To subscribe to that is to punish them for being an SEC school. Because, again, the, the committee is supposed to be trying to get the four best teams. At least that's what they indicate. If you, and Georgia's clearly one of the four best teams. All the computers think so. What we just watched says so. So you're telling me Georgia can't go because it's an SEC member? Because that's what it comes down to. Because you make SEC, uh, Georgia a big, a big 12 member, you, you know what they do? They beat Texas on Saturday, same as Oklahoma did. You make them a and, – and so you, and, and similarly, you take Oklahoma, make them an SEC member, you know what they do? Almost certainly lose to Alabama, just like Georgia did. So if Georgia was ahead of Oklahoma on, uh, you know, on, on Saturday morning, I don't know how Georgia was behind Oklahoma on, on Saturday night after the performance Georgia put on in the SEC championship game. This is something I say about the top 25 and one all the time. If you are, because it happens in the AP poll all the time, the, tw- the, the eighth-ranked team in the country will play the number one team in the country, and the number one team in the country will beat them in a competitive game. You look up at the AP poll the next Monday, and they've dropped from eight to ninth. Why? How, how, does, how does losing to the number one team in a competitive game prove you're not the eighth-ranked team in the country? How does it mean you should drop from eight? It doesn't. It never has. It never will. And yet that is exactly what happened to Georgia. They went out and played the number one team in the country that had been waxing everybody competitively into the final two minutes, really competitively the whole game. They had a Hail Mary at the, uh, you know, in the final seconds to try to force an overtime. But they went out and they, they played Alabama snap for snap and got dropped from fourth to fifth. Uh, I'm not saying it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, but if I were – because you can – if you want to argue the other side, you say, yeah, but while they were doing that, Oklahoma enhanced its resume by beating Texas on a neutral. So it's not just that Georgia hurt its resume because Georgia didn't. It's that Oklahoma enhanced its resume. Okay, fine. But just switch them around. 
Oklahoma plays Alabama, they lose there. Georgia plays Texas, they win there. That's what I believe, at least. That's what odds makers would think, at least. And so, really, to leave Georgia out, to drop them from four to five, because like they 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 couldn't pull off a win over Alabama, which is something probably nobody will pull off this year. Uh, again, it just it it fails logically. Last thing, the Jalen Hurts uh, story, which is phenomenal. Like, if you wanted to go back to the national championship game last January and start there, and then. That's that's the start of your movie, and the end of your movie is what happened on Saturday night, when he comes into the game, replaces the guy that replaced him last time for different reasons, obviously, but still, and then gets the game-winning touchdown to send Alabama into the college football playoff for the millionth year in a row. You end your movie there. You got a hell of a movie. I don't know how you fill out the middle. You might need him to get like a girlfriend and have some girlfriend problems or whatever. But the movie starting there, ending there is terrific. I hate the cliche. Uh, you couldn't write this in Hollywood, but it is um it is it is it's good enough for Hollywood. Yeah, no, th- that's why sports always just it provides some sometimes it provides these moments that are so on the nose they would be ridiculous in any other context. The Hertz story, honestly, it made for me, and I'm not like a massive Alabama hater, but I thought it would have been spicier if we would have had Georgia beat Alabama. It made that uh, Bama win just it made it palatable because who wouldn't want to root for Jalen Hurts in that kind of situation. And as for your Georgia point, uh, I largely agree with you, but this is where college football and its playoff gets into a sticky situation when you're only going with four teams. We don't have discussions like this on this kind of level, debating nearly as impassionate because you know what? Like You might think you deserve to be on the one line. If you get a two, it might suck, but guess what? You're still in. You're one of the five best teams in the in the tournament. It doesn't really matter much. And if and if we're talking, if we're moving the the ledger all the way down, and it's who got in and who didn't, well, we we bitch about that a little bit. But no one believes that teams that don't get in or just are just left out are you know top ten most likely teams to win the NCAA tournament. Sure, you can break through and make a Final Four, a la what VCU did in 2011. But this is where college football gets sticky with only having four teams. And when you're trying to also evaluate such a smaller section of games and you're only playing three non-conference games overall. I think Georgia is one of the four best teams in the, in the country, and for the reasons you stated, Parrish, um, it would have been great to see him in. I don't have as big of an issue with you as, as you do, but the, the biggest reason I wanted him in was if you had put in another SEC team and you had kept three conferences out, I think that's what expedites us to an 18 playoff. That's why I wanted to see it more than anything else. It didn't happen. Um, it is intriguing as college basketball media members and college football fans perish, but to see the committee still learning by this like year by year, like it's learned to crawl, it's learned to walk now, it's getting there, but every year there's just something here, there, or everywhere where it's just kind of stepping into it a little bit, and this year this is the big lesson. I think all of these things will add up and it's why we'll eventually get to an 18 playoff i think georgia is one of the three best teams in college football sagarin ratings say the same thing so we have a college football playoff that is better than anything we've ever had but still not right because an undefeated team is is left out of the playoff and a third best team that was considered the fourth best team by the committee on saturday morning and then somehow gets dropped to fifth because they lost in the final two minutes to the best team by a wide margin um, that that's a flawed system. The the actual point I wanted to make about Jalen Hurts though wasn't that, you know, it, it's it's a it's a movie. It's terrific. From from that moment in January to that moment Saturday night, wow. The I love the Jalen Hurts story as much as anybody. I was rooting and I tweeted this as, as I'm a, I'm as happy for him as I could be for anybody because he really did 
make a decision that I don't think I would have made if I were him. And he was rewarded for that by having that moment on Saturday night. So I love the story. But I roll my eyes a little bit at the people out there on social media and on television saying things like, see, this is what happens when you stick with it, when you fight through adversity, when you don't give up you know, and just transfer to another school. But you decide to be loyal, and you decide to be a good teammate, and you decide to be humble, and you decide to say all the right things, do all the right things, then, then this is what happens. No, this is not what happens. This is what happened for Jalen Hurts. Miraculously. The most likely scenario, the moment he decided not to transfer, was always him never playing another meaningless down of football at the University of Alabama. Only because of a high ankle sprain did this happen. So I hate people using the Jalen Hurts story as a cause-effect situation. See, this is what happens when you decide not to transfer and you stick it out. No, no, it is what happened for Jalen Hurts. But that it happened for Jalen Hurts doesn't mean this is what happens when you do that. It just means this is what happened for Jalen Hurts. People say all these things all the time. Jalen Hurts actually said it earlier today on television. You know, everything happens for a reason. No, everything doesn't happen for a reason. Life is full of coincidences, randomness. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. And if you decide to stick it out and not transfer and be loyal, it doesn't mean that you'll be rewarded like Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts just happened to be rewarded by a, a total a, a random high ankle sprain, high ankle sprain from a from a, a starting quarterback. And so I. I, I love the Jalen Hurts story. I can appreciate it. But I push back a little bit on the talking heads, and I identify myself as one of them for a different sport. But uh, the talking heads trying to turn it into something it's not. This isn't a lesson in reasons why you don't transfer. It's just a nice Jalen Hurts story. Nothing more, nothing less. I have nothing to add to that other than uh, it sometimes annoys me how often we can agree on certain things. And I don't think I could more emphatically agree with what you just said. Then shouts to Devin Downey, shouts to Chester, South Carolina, shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle. He's the legend. Shouts to, shouts to Larnell. And please go subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. It really is mostly, usually, college basketball podcasts. I know we got into college football, but we don't do that very, very often. So uh, if you're looking for a college basketball podcast, consider us. Subscribe, rate it favorably, five stars with nice comments. That's all I've ever asked from you. And we're going to be back on Wednesday morning. Till then. Take care.